Welcome back, everybody, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, we have the honor and pleasure to have with us the author of Harding, the Jazz Age President, Ryan S. Walters. And this is a story I've been looking forward to, because if there was ever an underrated president, it was Warren Harding. Uh, Ryan, it's great to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. What initially inspired you to take on this story? Well, basically what you just said, he's very uh, underappreciated, uh, slandered, smeared. And of course, going through college and grad school, I heard all the same, you know, talking points and stories in class about Warren Harding that everybody hears, that he was dumb, he didn't do anything scandalous, womanizer, all of these things. And, you know, brought on the Great Depression. I mean, they've, they've blamed him for just about everything except the Kennedy assassination. So, uh, you know, I would pick up little <laughs> tidbits. A few people would defend him a little bit. I would pick up little tidbits here. I read a column by Pat Buchanan one day. And he had some good things to say. And I thought, this is this is this is interesting. This guy, this guy, I think, has uh, been unjustly slandered by historians. So I just started digging into the real record. I actually drew up the idea for the book and sketched out how I wanted to do it while I was still in grad school many years ago. And when I started doing the book, I pulled those notes right back out. And that's essentially how I did it. I went to the primary sources, which is what historians do, started looking at his letters and speeches and, and, and memoirs of people that knew him. And I found a much different story uh, than what I'd been told. Yeah. And the book reads that way. It's really a fascinating insight into a guy who was wrongly remembered. I was no star in history class, but about the only thing I ever learned about Harding was that he was associated in some way with the Teapot Dome scandal, and that's my only memory of him, probably because that's all I was taught. But to be fair with the school, they probably went a little further. But you're right. It's all been negative out there. So what you're doing is a, is a job, I'm sure, that will be bandied about by critics quite a bit, but it's an important job, and I think you've done a great job digging into his history. Well, I appreciate that, and that, that was what I was trying to do, and I don't really care what yep. critics say. You know, they're going to say, well, you're just a revision. It's supposed to be some ugly smear word, right? Well, what's wrong with revisionism if it's wrong, <laughs> if, if the story's wrong? And what I said in the book is I'm not a revisionist. I'm just trying to restore Harding to where he, his proper place. I mean, the man was very popular. He was, he was elected in 1920 with over 60% of the president to ever get six, over 60% of the vote. His, his, when he died, uh, which was almost a century, was a little over a century ago, August the second, nineteen twenty-three. We just passed the century mark. He had a massive, you know, funeral procession. He died in San Francisco, and they brought him across the country on a train. They said it was the biggest uh, crowd and procession they had seen since Lincoln's assassination. So the man was beloved at the time. Of course, the scandals came out after he died, and and it was easy for subsequent administrators to blame it on him. Hey, let's, let's blame it on the, the guy that's dead. <laughs> he yeah, can't defend can't himself. Defend himself. Yep. Uh, and and that hurt him, his reputation. He's been, he's been the target of a 100-year smear campaign. So, and I'm not the only one that's tried to straighten it out. I, I think I've made the biggest effort to try to straighten it out. But hopefully we can we can help him a little bit. Uh, he used to be the worst president. He was in the, he was the very last in, in more polls than any other president. But I think he's up to 37th not now. Not bad. Now, that's still... <laughs> That's still that's still a, a, in the failure category. Yeah, right. When you look at what he accomplished, I mean, you have to scratch your head and say, "My goodness, this is a failure." I mean, what this man accomplished. So, 
maybe I can get him up to 36th or 35th and somebody else. I'm probably going to get him on Mount Rushmore, but I think we can pick him up some. Was there any seminal event that led you to deciding to do this story? Um, nothing nothing major, just little tidbits I would I would pick up from here and there, and I just had the idea. Originally, I had the idea to, because Coolidge was always knocked around as well, and, and some of the polls you go back to 20 years ago or 25 years ago, Coolidge was near the bottom as well. Now, Coolidge has come on up, so, and I had originally wanted to do Harding and Coolidge, but then Amity Schlaes and others had written some really good biographies of Coolidge, and I said, because they wouldn't touch Harding. I noticed that reading these books, and I thought, you know, well, somebody needs to defend poor old Harding, and here I'm, and so I'm, I'm going to do it, you know, and a lot of people thought, man, what are you going to, what are you going to do that for? Are you going to ruin your history career? <laughs> <laughs> And of course, John W. Dean, you know, he wrote a book uh, from Arthur Schlesinger's American President series. It's a little bitty book on Harding. And, and Dean was, of course, of Watergate fame. And of course, he was from Marion, Ohio. He lived in Marion, which is where Harding was from. So he was kind of a good guy to do that. But I wanted to dig deeper into it because the Dean book's not very big. So I said, I want to do a deeper dive, more into policy. What did he actually do? As president, so I spent a lot of time on his domestic policy, foreign policy, and other policies, and really try to show that this man really accomplished a lot in less than 900 days in office. What are some of the biggest myths about Harding, and the ones you enjoyed most unraveling? Well, I, I tackle eight myths of Harding. One of them was that he was, you know, he was not an intellectual. He was not a smart man. He was dumb. You know. Um, People said he was pliable. People, one historian said that he didn't know anything about the issues because he was in the dark about everything. In other words, he was this—he was this guy that they just picked to be the president, installed him in office, and he was supposed to be a pliable guy that the party leaders, Senate leaders, could just, you know, bend to their will. He would do whatever they wanted to do, and that was one myth I dispelled. When you look at his letters and speeches, this was a man. This was not a man who was dumb at all. It's a man who understood. His letters are pretty incredible. There's a collection of letters that were published, and you can go through his letters. The Harding Library now and, and Marion are actually digitizing all his letters, which I'm glad because people can go online soon and see these letters and, and realize this man understood the issues. I mean, this was a man who was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and helped stop the U.S. entry into the League of Nations and was chosen by Henry Cabot Lodge, the, the chairman of that committee. Um, to give the leadoff speech uh, against the League of Nations. I mean, you don't you don't pick some dummy um, to do that. I mean, he chaired the Republican National Convention. He was very well liked within the party, and you know he accomplished a great deal in office. So, again, a lot of these myths. The woman. I mean, that he was a womanizer. I dispel that myth with primary sources, the scandals. I mean, all of that I knocked down um, throughout the course of the book. The scandals, where did the scandals emanate from? Would it be newspaper, specific newspapers, or was it just like a general thing where it spread everywhere? Yeah, so many, of the, so many of the attacks on him, when you trace it back to the origin, you find out it's political attacks by his enemies, um, Democrats, uh, people that didn't like him, that, that just, it's just a lot of rumor. The same thing goes on now. We see it all the time. You have to be able to cut through all of that and find out what the truth is. And of course, with the womanizing, huh, he was a, you know, they, they make him sound like, uh, you know, Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy, you know, John Kennedy had a, you know, he, he apparently had a different woman every night or two and that kind of thing. And a lot of stories about that. 
Harding did have a couple of affairs in his life. I mean, his, I don't think his marriage life was all that great. He and his wife did not have any children together. Uh, she had a son from a previous marriage, but they did not have any. And I don't, and she was a she was a, a great woman in her own right. She helped build up Harding's newspaper, the Marion Star, to financial success. She should get credit for that. But he said at one point, he said, you know, she makes she she gives me hell every day. So again, <laughs> their exact nature was I don't know. He had a couple of affairs. One of them was with the infamous Nan Britton, which did produce a daughter. We know now through DNA. Um, but they made it sound like he he had all these women just a parade, and they had these wild parties in the White House. Absolutely not true whatsoever. I mean, I, I found three sources of people who worked in the house who said no women came in here to see Hardy. You, you know, he supposedly had this closet off the Oval Office that he used to go in there with the girls. And that, you know, the, the head Secret Service agent said no women came to see him in the White House. We had him under surveillance. He didn't do that. The head Secret Service agent, who was really not a fan of his particularly, defended him in his own memoir and said, you know, the worst thing doing the White House, he played a little poker with his friends on occasion, and he would mildly curse at a golf ball because he liked to play <laughs> golf. Of course, if anybody plays golf, you know, cursing is, is kind of part of it. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's the Secret Service agent said, and, and of course, the, the, the doorman and people that worked there were saying, no, none of that stuff happened. It didn't happen that way. So a lot of it's just rumor and myth. It just got carried on to the point people repeat it as if it's fact. Yeah. And it's not. Before I'd like to get into some of the other myths with you, but before we do that, I'd like to kind of jump back just a second and have you give us a quick bio so we know kind of we know a little bit more about the man, and then we'll get into the rest of the myths and whether they're debunked or some that may have been true. Uh, what what made him rise to president? Well, you know he's not he's not as we would say today he's not a man of privilege. Uh, he was born. In Ohio, he's from his hometown was Marion, Ohio. You know, he was not a man of wealth. Uh, didn't you know? Didn't go to Harvard or Yale. He went to a little college in Ohio. You know, got into journalism, got into the newspaper business as a young man. Uh, went together with some friends in the 1880s and bought the Marion Star for just a, a few hundred bucks. And within a few years, he bought his other friends out. He was the sole owner and and editor of Marion Star. And of course, he used his media credentials. He started he started attending the Republican National Conventions as a newspaper man, and eventually got into local politics. He ran for some local offices. Eventually, was a Ohio State Senator for a couple of terms, and then he was Lieutenant Governor of Ohio for a term. In 1910, he uh, ran for governor but lost. But then in 1914, he was elected to the U.S. Senate, which is where he was when he was given the presidential nomination in 19. 20. He was a newspaper man, and he was quite a a good newspaper man. Marion Starr was just a little bitty paper, and he built it up into a a pretty substantial paper. I mean, it still exists today. And he sold it while he was president for $550,000. Now, that was $550,000 at the time. Yeah, it's a lot of money today. Yeah. Uh, That would be today six, seven million dollars. And this is a guy who bought it for a couple of hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. So obviously yep. the man was not uh, dumb at all. I mean, how do you you know? And his wife should get a lot of credit for that. His wife Florence did a lot to help grow the business. But Harding was was a consummate new. He loved that business. He worked at the paper every day. He he paid his employees well. He treated them well. He even gave them stock in the company. I mean, he was a very good guy to work with. He didn't like to be called. He didn't like to be called Mister Hart, uh, Mister Harding, or or 
Senator Harding or, or something like that. He didn't like those kind of things. Uh, he would tell people, look, I'm Warren. And he would tell people in town, call me Warren. Even even when he was president, he's playing golf out on the golf, you know, the, the you know, out on the links. And he would say, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just regular old Warren. That's the way he was. He was that type of guy. Um, people around town liked him. I mean, he was always generous with his time and his money, helping people in marrying poor people that, that you know didn't have Christmas presents or things of that nature. So he was, uh, um, he was, he was considered the prominent citizen in Marion, Ohio. But again, he came from humble origins. He didn't, he didn't come from well. He didn't go to Princeton. He didn't send like Woodrow Wilson or anything like that. He was a small town guy, and he exhibited small town values. And now I he think, was, he would be, be just about the exact opposite of uh, Woodrow Wilson, who uh, had a, a Ivy League school education and pretty much had the attitude to go with it. Yes, sir, he did. Did the and, two ever meet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they did. Um, a story relating the book, talking about the League of Nations. Again, Harding was on the Foreign Relations Committee, and, and they don't put idiot senators on the Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah. The chairman of that was Henry Cabot Lodge, a very prominent Republican from Massachusetts. And he uh, and he and Harding and other members of that committee actually went to the White House to try to discuss the League of Nations with Woodrow Wilson to, to work out some kind of a compromise to say, you know, maybe we can we can work this out. And it probably would have passed if Wilson would have been a little bit more agreeable. But he was not. In other words, he wanted it passed exactly the way he had it. And he didn't want. He didn't want any other uh, changes, but he didn't want one punctuation mark changed in that treaty. He wouldn't back down one bit on the League of Nations, right to his death, right? Right, he wouldn't. And and Harding went down to the White House with Henry Cabot Lodge and others to talk to Wilson. And I and I relay in the book a, a, a story about Harding there and some of the questions that he and exchanges he got into with Woodrow Wilson. So this was before Harding ever had any inkling he would be the nominee in 1920. This was about, this was 1918 and 1919. Can um, you tell it, can you share an example of one of those conversations with us here? The problem with the League of Nations was <clears throat> the, the problem that Republicans had, and it's actually interesting because it, it it's, we're seeing the same thing today with NATO. We're, we're pledged to go to war under the League of Nations if, an, if a member nation is attacked by another nation, in other words, we have to go to war. We're pledged to go. We're honor-bound to go. And that was the problem that Henry Cabot Lodge and others, because Congress declares war. Congress decides when we go to war, not not the League of Nations. And so that was the problem they wanted. That was one exchange that they had in there was what they wanted an explanation of that. And, of course, Wilson was trying to downplay that to say no 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 that, that that's not what it says and of course Harding's position was well why is it in there I mean why <laughs> why, why, why why is that language in there if it's not going to be invoked because you're, you're usurping congressional authority now the reason I say that's just like it is today with NATO there was a vote held in the Senate just last week on the very same thing NATO's provision in there and it's, it had to do with Ukraine and Russia in other words if NATO is pulled into this conflict uh, they had an amendment on the on the floor by Mike Lee and Rand Paul that uh, we are not we're not honor bound to go to war without a congressional authorization. It's almost the exact same thing that was happening. And of course, it, yeah. was, it was voted down, if you can believe that senators uh, voted that down. And uh, which I just kind of it, it, it's how times have changed. And in those days, that was what killed the League of Nations. It, it was it was put before the Senate twice. 
was voted down both times in 19 and again in 1920. And Harding had a big role to play in, the, in, in killing the League of Nations and making sure that we weren't in it. We'll return with Harding, the Jazz Age president, our interview with Ryan S. Walters, right after these sponsor messages. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. And now, back to our interview. If you will, please share another couple of prolific myths regarding Harding. He, he was a dark horse candidate, what they used to call a dark horse candidate for president. That, that mean, The first one was James K. Polk, and we've seen other ones, James Garfield. And that's the dark horse simply means uh, somebody was became the nominee who was not discussed when the process started. In other words, nobody was really thinking about Warren Harding mm-hmm. um, when they began thinking about uh, major uh, candidates for president, but the Republicans didn't have a really standout candidate. Now, Theodore Roosevelt was considering running again in 1920. Of course, he died unexpectedly in January of 1919, and I, he actually exchanged some letters with Warren Harding. I have them uh, some in the book, and one of them was he was considering Harding as a running mate if he got the nomination in 1920. Um, so they they did they did correspond, and of course. There was, I mean, General Leonard Wood was thought to be the one leading candidate. Now, one of them was going to be uh, uh, Charles Evans Hughes. Charles Evans Hughes probably would have been the, the nominee and the president in 1920. Uh, for those that don't know, Charles Evans Hughes was the Republican nominee in 1916 and barely lost to Wilson. And, and it was a um, uh, very close race. It came down to California, only a few thousand votes in California. Uh, of course, the story is that Hughes went to bed thinking he was president, and Wilson went to bed thinking he had lost, and when they <laughs> they had to be awakened to be, be told the news. Hughes was going to run again, but his daughter got sick and eventually passed away, and he did not. So they really didn't have any standout candidate. And what they were what they were trying to avoid is which what all conventions try to avoid is a deadlock, uh, you know, where there's no candidate and it just goes on for days and days and days and many, many ballots. And you end up with a bunch of fighting and hurt feelings and it hurts you in the fall. And of course, the, the rumor is that uh, they, you know, there, there's deadlock on the floor and then the senators got together in a, quote, smoke filled room. And they chose Harding to be the nominee and, and electing president again because he was pliable and he was easily led. He's somebody they could control. Myth and, number three. Yeah, I mean, he's, 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 but that's not true at all. I mean, first of all, you have to understand the history of conventions. This is when primaries had just started. There was only a handful of primaries, and you could get a handful of delegates running in the primaries, but that didn't, it's not like today where the primaries picked the conventions did. From the start of the conventions in the 1830s all the way until, uh, Really, after 1968, remember 1968, Hubert Humphrey won the nomination for the Democratic Party and didn't run in any of the primaries. That The rules and all were changed after 1968. So this so-called smoke-filled room, that's how they were just trying to find some candidate that the, that the convention could agree on 
without getting a deadlock that would last for days and days because the Republicans were in great shape. World War One and all of that, and people were up, upset with the direction of the country. 1919 was a horrible year. 1920, there was a depression going on. Republicans were sitting in good shape to win the election very easily. They had to get somebody the convention would accept and who could win. And they looked at Warren Harding. Again, these senators knew him. They, they, they had worked. And, and he's the one they chose. But understand something. The convention had to agree to that. These senators couldn't force that convention to do anything at all. Yeah. So the smoke-filled room stuff is just all, all, baloney. All nominees in that time period were, were picked in that manner. Remember, even Lincoln. I mean, you can look at the convention that selected Lincoln in 1860. There's a lot of deal-making. That's one of the reasons why they came out with the primaries and eventually got the primaries to the position they are was to try to get rid of some of that. So the idea that Harding and them did something that was somehow you know, nefarious and, and sneaky or sleazy is not true at all. They were just simply trying to prevent a deadlock convention and get somebody the convention would accept because the delegates had to nominate them and they nominated Harding because he was popular within the party. But in the same convention, they wanted to do a ticket balancing thing. They wanted to get Senator Lenroot from Wisconsin, who was a liberal senator, to run with Harding. So we, had, we got a con very conservative guy. Let's get a little bit more of a liberal Republican because you had that progressive party split going on in those days. We got to bring these progressives back in. And the convention wasn't having it at all. I mean, they did not want anything to do with progressive liberal Republicans. And they started shouting Coolidge, Coolidge, Coolidge. And the, and the convention, uh, that's what the convention got, was a Harding Coolidge ticket. So the bosses clearly didn't control that at all. I'm seeing a lot of history repeats itself, obviously, here in the past uh, 100 years. Yeah, you can, you can see a lot of it. It's, it's like Mark Twain always said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. <laughs> we, we see that a lot. We see that a lot. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, you know, here we are in 1919, uh, World War One, the war to end all wars is over, but uh, there's always been a constant criticism that not enough was done to prevent a second world war from coming. Did, was Harding a part of that pl uh, in a plus or minus way? Is that a fair question to come back and ask? No, no he didn't. And he tried When he was president, he tried to straighten that out. Harding's position was, and he's been accused okay. of being an isolationist, and that's really kind of an ugly and unfortunate word. It's really not true, but the way Harding and a lot of people would looked at it was that's a European problem. And, of course, Harding voted for World War One. I. I mean, just like most senators did. But I think a lot of them realized we were, we were kind of duped when they got in and saw what was going on. Uh, there were a lot of things that were going on under the table that they knew about that Wilson was, was engaged in. And, and, you know, if we'd have stayed out of that war— I truly believe there wouldn't have been a World War II because we tipped the balance in favor of the Allies. But, of course, <clears throat> we ended up getting into it. The Allies are victorious. <clears throat> and, of course, the Treaty of Versailles <laughs> ended up being a total disaster. Uh, one senator, Philander Knox, even said, look, he was from Pennsylvania. He said, this is not the Treaty of Versailles. This is the Truce of Versailles. And he was saying that at the time. He said, you're going to have a, a worse war because of this because what it did was – it left, you know, it, mm -hmm. it punished Germany, at least Germany, sufficient enough to anger them and, want, and, and and leave them where they wanted to seek revenge in the future. But it left them strong enough so that they could do it. Uh, and really, Wilson, this is one 
but it's one area where I'll give Wilson some credit. Wilson was right in one regard. He's, his idea was we shouldn't beat Germany over the head. We ought to sure. let bring them back into the League of and put them in the League of Nations. Bring them back into the family of nations. There's enough blame to go around. Let's not tear them up. Of course, France wanted to rip them into pieces. So if he'd have sure. done one or the other, um, we'd have probably been in better shape. But of course, we 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 get right down the middle. Again, they're mad enough to seek revenge. They're strong enough to, to, to do it. But most of that wasn't enforced. But Harding's position was it's not our job to enforce that. And when he got into office, one of the things he did, he, he put together the formal agreement to end the war. That hadn't been done yet. The war was officially ongoing. And he withdrew our troops from the Rhineland. In the Rhineland, uh, that was that demilitarized zone, the Treaty of Versailles put in place he withdrew those troops in other words his position was that's for england and france to to, to deal with germany uh, i don't ever want to do this again um now relating the book where uh, he goes to the docks in new jersey where thousands of caskets are coming in from uh, uh fallen american servicemen from france to be uh, buried in uh, here in our country you know he's got tears in his eyes and he said you know we, never again, never again. You know, we can't ever do this again. And that's what he wanted to do. That's why they had the Washington uh, Naval Conference and other things and, and, uh, and looked at disarmament uh, as a way to keep, prevent wars. The League of Nations, as far as it's concerned, it was, it was weak and had no teeth. A lot of people have said, well, if the United States had been part of that, we wouldn't have had a World War II. I don't believe that's mm-hmm. true at all. Because look yep, at what was going on in the Japan yep. started their rampage. In the 1930s, they were a member of the League of Nations. The League of Nations condemned them when they um, invaded Manchuria. And then you know what? And it, and what did Japan do? They just simply walked out of the League of Nations and said, "We're not a, we're not a member anymore. So y'all do whatever you want." There was nothing that could be done except talk. Um, and we had even considered a naval blockade of Japan when that happened and under Hoover, but the British wouldn't go along with it. So uh, a lot of people have put the blame on the British, not us. Our position again was from Harding and Coolidge and others is it's not our, you know, this, that's not our, that's not our problem. It's Europe failed uh, to do something about Hitler. And, and I mean, we're not, we're not the policemen of the world. And that was the way Harding looked at it. He even said at one point that it's not up to us to determine what kind of government other nations should have. He didn't like that idealistic part of World War One. this, you know, make the world safe for democracy and that kind of thing. So we, we shouldn't be spreading democracy. That's not our job. That's not our mission. Sure, we have to protect our rights on the high seas and those kind of things. But other than that, that's as far as we go with it. Please share with our listeners what you feel some of Harding's greatest strengths as a president were. Well... I'll tell you, one of the things I think that, that gets lost in Harding, we know about the, the, the booming economy of the 1920s and, you know, the roaring 20s and all of that. And, he, and I, I try to give him credit for, for, for that. Coolidge gets a little more credit than I think he deserves. I think Harding deserves more credit than he's given none. But one thing I looked at was foreign policy and how he conducted himself in foreign policy. Woodrow Wilson had made a mess of American foreign policy, particularly in relations to Mexico and other nations in Latin America. We had occupied Cuba and and other parts of the Caribbean, and that was to keep Germany from grabbing those areas and and using them as a staging ground or or submarine bases. But our our relations with Mexico was completely poisoned. Uh, The Mexican president, Obregón, did not like Wilson at all, and he called him a terrible enemy of Mexico. And Harding came in 
um, and began to write letters to the Mexican president saying, hey, I want to repair relations. And Obregón was real happy. He said Harding's inauguration is a day of deliverance for Mexico. And they, they, they opened up a warm friendship through correspondence. And eventually, because our, our relations with Mexico had been totally severed, our diplomatic relations. And just after Harding died, they were, they were restored. And he worked to rebuild relationships throughout Latin America and other nations. So his, his kind ways, I mean, again, he was not arrogant like uh, Wilson. He was not this, I'm the smartest guy in the room type. He wasn't a scholar. So he just believed in sitting down with people and working things out. And that really worked so well in foreign policy. I really wish he could have served two terms. I think things would have been a lot different throughout the 20s, particularly in terms of foreign policy. I mean, the Washington Naval Conference, he brought these nations together, and we got disarmament from the, the great naval race that had helped cause World War One in, in some regards. Uh, there were other treaties that were struck. One treaty that was – two treaties that were struck in the Pacific. One diplomatic historian said um, kept the peace in the Pacific for a decade. Of course, Japan – We just, as we just mentioned, Japan broke it by invading Manchuria and, and, and later the rest of China. Um, but there were a lot of things that came out of that that – conference. And again, that's not something that Wilson and a lot of people would have done, but Harding did. Another area is healing domestic tranquility. The, the country uh, was not getting along with itself in 1919, particularly in, in terms of racial violence throughout 1919. They call it the Red Summer of 1919 because of all the blood that was shed. And he, here comes Harding and, and, and is the first president in the 20th century to call for civil rights for black Americans for an anti-lynching law. A federal anti-lynching law they got passed through the house they couldn't get it through the senate goes to birmingham alabama and i think about this goes to birmingham alabama the heart of the old confederacy gives a speech to a segregated audience on why blacks should be accorded their equal rights under the law i mean that is you talk about courageous nobody would have done that wilson would have never done that at all he was a racist fdr never did anything like that no president would have dared to do that he pardoned Eugene Debs, who had been put in prison. He was the nation's leading socialist. He held no ill will against Eugene Debs. They, they, they probably would have agreed on nothing politically, but he pardoned Eugene Debs because Debs had been given a 10-year sentence in prison by Woodrow Wilson for, for speaking out against the war. Harding pardoned him and said, I only got one condition, that you come to the White House to see me when you get out of prison. And, and Debs went and and saw him and, and, and spoke to reporters afterwards and talked about what a good man Harding was. So he had those qualities and traits. He had those small town values and his easygoing way helped heal a lot of wounds um, in the country. 1919, as you put it in your book, was a hell year uh, for any president, any administration. You had, uh, you had racism, you had lynchings, you had uh, the socialist trying to really make a good footprint in America. All kinds of tension. And like you said, his populist manners and the way he attacked problems was negotiating even with your worst right. enemy. He, he didn't... Harding, and, and this, in and, and some sense, this, this, this became a, a little bit of a fault. Harding wanted to see the good in everybody. Um, he didn't like to see or look at people in, in, in a bad way. He, he trusted people, and, and, and it kind of got him in a little bit of trouble with trusting people a little bit too much. You know, he just he had a hard time believing people would do some of the things they did, and, of course, you get the scandals. And, of course, he, he trusted people that he put in office who did some bad things. Um, but it, And that's where the, the trust everybody, big-hearted Warren Harding kind of got him in trouble. But that's, you know, that's any administration. You know, you can't, you can't 
know every single person that you appoint to office and and know that they're not going to do anything wrong. And, and, and certainly some people did. So it got him into trouble in, in one end, but on another end, he, he made great strides uh, in healing the breaches in the, in, the, in the wounds of the country. What's the hard truth about what his failures were with regard to the scandals? Where did he fall? And where, where, maybe where did he show the biggest regret? Although he didn't live yeah. long to be able to write long memoirs. <laughs> right. What do you think he regretted well, the most? Somebody asked me one time, if Harding was here, what would you, what question would you ask him? And I would say uh, of something, I, I think I answered something like, you know, what would you do different? Probably would, you wouldn't have hired Doherty, uh, Jesse Smith, uh, you know, <laughs> um, um, Albert Fall, you know, Charles Forbes is probably what he would have done different. Straighten out our listeners with regard to their involvement so we know well, who they are. The, the, one of the myths of Harding was that he had a bunch of cronies that he brought from Ohio to Washington, and they and they had a little nickname, the Ohio Gang, and they were there to loot the Treasury. And you know, a lot of historians call him the most scandalous president ever, and that kind of thing. There were three. There were three scandals in the Harding administration. There was one in the Veterans Bureau, there was one in the Justice Department, and there was Teapot Dome, which is one that everybody seems to know or at least have heard of. And a lot of it was bribery and, and skimming profits and things like that. Veterans Bureau had just gotten started because of all the wounded veterans coming back from France. We That's where we started the Veterans Bureau and, the, and a system of veterans hospitals, and we were spending a lot of money on that. And, and Harding appointed Charles Forbes, somebody he had met a few years before, as the head of the Veterans Bureau, and they were constructing these hospitals and then supplying the hospitals with medical supplies, and he was skimming off the top. He skimmed about $2 million worth of profits. Is there are very few people that Harding didn't like and didn't trust, and 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 he he didn't know Charles Forbes that well, but he thought a lot of him, and he he appointed him to the head of the Veterans Bureau, and of course he turned out to be a crook, and of course here's the difference: Harding right. didn't didn't just dismiss him or fire him. There's a story of a New York Times reporter who walked into the White House, and this is before the White House had all of the, the I mean, you and I can't walk in the White House now, but in those days it was a little bit easier to do. And a reporter came in and, and according to his report, witnessed Harding grabbing Charles Forbes by the throat and shaking him and calling him some, some choice words because he had found out what he had done. Forbes was mm -hmm. fired. Forbes was prosecuted. Forbes went to prison for what he did. The Justice mm -hmm. Department, now this is the, and again, let me, let me make it clear. Charles Forbes was not a from Ohio, okay. So I'm fixing to spell this Ohio gang myth as well. The only, the only crooked person that he appointed um, from Ohio was Harry Doherty, who was the Attorney General. And he was a longtime confidant of of Harding and helped kind of manage a lot of his campaigns in the past. He trusted Doherty, and Doherty ran the uh, Justice Department. And Doherty appointed a guy from Ohio named Jesse Smith as kind of his right hand man. And they were selling pardons and and other government goodies out of the Justice Department. They had rented a little house that was secretly that nobody knew about, and they were just—it was just bribery. People were paying them to get pardons and other other goodies from the government. Harding found out about that one and confronted Jesse Smith. He seemed to be the ringleader in it. And Smith one night he said, "You know, we know what's going on." He said, "You're going to be arrested, so go home and get your affairs in order, right? And you go, go go handle everything because you're you're going to jail for this." And of course, Jesse Smith went to his house, burned all his personal papers and and evidence, and then shot himself. Doherty was put on trial a couple of times, but was never convicted for what he had done. 
the, the, of course, Teapot Dome was the big one. And Teapot Dome, by today's standards, some of the things we've seen in the in the, in our more modern era, the last thirty or forty years, is as one historian put it, Teapot Dome was rinky dink um, compared to today. The Navy ran on petroleum in those days, not nuclear power. And so, in case we got into another big war, they had set aside two oil reserves in the west. One was Elk Hills, California. The other one was Teapot Dome, Wyoming. That's where the name comes from. And they were supposed to be, they were under the control of the Navy secretary and supposed to be reserved, not to be touched or developed. They were for the Navy just in case we had a war. Of course, uh, the, the Navy secretary was not the sharpest knife in the drawer, a guy named Edwin Den, uh, Denby. They considered impeaching him for his role in Teapot Dome, and, and one member of Congress said, well, the last time I looked, stupidity was not a reason for impeaching somebody. Um, <laughs> but Albert Fall was appointed by Harding. He had been a senator from New Mexico. Harding knew him very well. They sat together. Their desks were side by side in the Senate, and, and Fall had been there for two terms. Fall was the interior secretary. And the Interior Secretary handles all the national forests and all of that outdoor things, grazing lands and all that minerals. And Fall went to the Navy Secretary and said, look, those oil reserves need to be in my department. I handle all the all that kind of stuff. And, of course, the Navy Secretary didn't think anything of it. They just transferred it over. And, of course, Albert Fall was having money problems. And what they didn't realize was he'd already decided to, to lease those two oil reserves to two private oil men and so they could drill and develop those oil reserves and of course he was paid quite a bit in bribes to do that and so it was just a simple case of Hmm. of just simple corruption and of course Harding found out about it on his voyage of understanding he went on a westward swing beginning in June of 1923 took him all the way to Alaska he was the first president to visit Alaska coming back down the west coast and that's where he died in San Francisco on August the 2nd, 1923. But on that trip, he found out about what had happened with that. Hoover was also on that trip, Herbert Hoover, the Commerce Secretary. And I relate a conversation that the two had about Teapot Dome. And Harding sat down and said, look, this is going on with fall. Uh, what do you think I should do about it? And Hoover said, let, let, you know, when we get back from the trip, let's handle it. Let's put it out there. Let's deal with it. So I believe Harding would have dealt with it just like he dealt with the other two. Let me mention this. I think I think Harding died of a broken heart. I think Harding, in other words, he found out about this scandal, and I think it just really crushed the man. He really was not yeah. the same. People said his attitude and mood changed during that trip when he found out about it. I think he thought, you know, gosh, here it is, a third. You know, I, my friend Albert Fall that I've known all these years has done this kind of thing, and I think it really did. And and, and people that knew Harding said the same thing. Coolidge. So Alice uh, Roosevelt Longworth wrote in her memoirs about it. A lot of people thought that that, that really did the man in. Yep. A very kind, trusting guy. And, and all of a sudden, he felt betrayed. He felt like he had knives in his back. Yep. But but I, I believe it's wrong to condemn Harding for Teapot Dome when he died before he ever had a chance to deal with it. That's a little bit unfair, in my opinion, because he had dealt with the other two or was in the process of dealing with them. He's not like Grant. I compare him to Grant. Grant had a, a, a dozen scandals in his administration and didn't do anything about any of them. Didn't fire anybody, didn't prosecute anybody. Nobody got in trouble at all. At least Harding was trying to clean up the mess. And of course, you got to blame him a little bit because he did, you know, he did appoint these guys. But, t- but consider Albert Fall for a second. 
he was the, he was the interior secretary. He had to be um, approved by the U.S. Senate. And guess what? When Harding submitted his name, he was approved by the Senate unanimously. Not one single senator senator in the U.S. Senate said anything about Albert Fall and said, hey, wait a minute, I heard this guy was corrupt. Nobody said anything. Everybody voted for him. No questions asked. So if Harding misjudged Albert Fall's character, so did the entire United States Senate. So how can yeah. you blame him for it um, totally, And which is what historians use. They just use it as a way to to, to, to smear his reputation. <laughs> the 1920s, the Jazz Age 20s, were famous for a really roaring economy. How much of that economy can rightly be attributed to Harding? Well, as we've mentioned, 1919 was a terrible year as far as domestic tranquility, the strikes, the terrorist bombings, all these things that happened, the racial strike. But the economy was not in bad shape. But in January 1920, it went into a depression, which is known as the Forgotten Depression, because most people don't even know we had one. Uh, we had, you know, inflation at 15, 15 and a half percent. I mean, unemployment went way up. Um, a lot of problems in the economy. Was, the country was in a bad and bad shape. Harding came in. You got to remember who, uh, excuse me, Wilson had come in to office and, and federal spending was less than a billion dollars a year. We had, a, we, we got the income tax in 1913, but you had to be a Rockefeller to pay 7% in taxes. If you were a regular person, you didn't pay tax income yeah. tax. But by the time Harding gets in, the, the, in 1919, the budget was $20 billion and, and we got skyrocketing deficits and debt. The debt had gone through the roof. The debt was about a billion dollars for the war. It was $26 billion after the war. Taxes were as high as 77% on the top rate and everybody was paying the income tax. Harding came in with a very laissez-faire, hands-off, conservative policy. Sec Treasury Secretary was Andrew Mellon, they came in and massively cut taxes, cut spending, and really reversed everything that, that, that Wilson had done. Wilson had almost waged war against businesses, particularly during uh, World War One. It was excess profits tax and all kind of other things going on. They had stronger antitrust uh, lawsuits going. Harding reversed all of that, and of course, you get a booming economy almost immediately. The Depression, uh, not only did he cut taxes massively across the board, he cut spending by 50%. I mean, he cut the budget by 50% across the board. That's a massive cut in spending. But he just basically turned it over to people, just like just like Reagan or, or, or Trump had done. Just you know, in other words, to get the government out of the way. And look at what happened. It was the greatest era of prosperity in the history of the country. We averaged seven percent of growth across throughout that decade. I mean, we're happy now if we get three percent in GDP. They had average yeah. of seven percent, and the unemployment rate in nineteen twenty six was one point six percent. I mean, it was a it was a boom like we've never seen. And of course, and that was an honest, and that was an honest unemployment uh, figure. Honest, you're exactly right. Um, today, people that are on public assistance are not considered unemployed. Um, mm -hmm. If we factored that in, I mean, look at what the unemployment rate would be. In those days, there was no such thing as that. So, 1.6 percent was an actual 1.6 percent, driven by the second industrial revolution, a boom in manufacturing, car production, and refrigerators, and all kind of things. Wages went up. For everybody, even the lower classes, their wages went up considerably during the 1920s. It wasn't a rich gets rich and poor gets poorer type thing. Wages for all classes of Americans went up significantly during the 1920s. And, of course, a lot of historians say, well, the excesses of the 1920s caused the, the, the bust in the 1930s. And that's another myth of Harding and Coolidge that I dispel. Uh, Hoover came in when the, when the, when the market crashed in 1929, and he, he basically reversed Harding and Coolidge's policies. They, they, they raised income taxes. 
they increased spending, the government got involved in everything. And of course, what they're not telling you is what the Federal Reserve was doing. The Federal Reserve was pulling money out of circulation to stave off inflation, and they pulled a third of the money out of circulation in four years. Of course, you're going to get a crashed economy when you do that. And the Federal Reserve has admitted that. They pulled too much money out too fast, and it crashed the economy. So it didn't have anything to do with Warren Harding or Calvin Coolidge. Do you have a favorite story that you'd like to share? Going back to some about his kind nature. There was a reporter for the uh, New York Times named Charles Thompson who didn't really particularly like Hardy. And he his memoirs later. And he went to Marion, Ohio, and I think probably to dig dirt. You know, he didn't like Harding. He even said, I can't stand even when Harding smiles. I mean, just grates on me. You know, the guy just loathes Harding. <laughs> but he goes around Marion, and he starts talking about people, talking to people about Harding, and everybody just loved him. And he said, you know, <clears throat> He said, you know, the guy's loved here in town. He's, he, he's, he's done so much for people. And he said that everybody had a different story to tell. They never, he said, I never heard the same story twice. Everybody had their own story that he helped my family out of a jam or he, you know, gave somebody a job or we didn't have anything for Christmas and he, he showed up with, with stuff for our kids and stuff. And there were so many of those great stories. And I think he, I think he probably had a little bit of respect for Harding. Um, after he saw what kind of a man he was, and so that's one thing I wanted to get across in the book was 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 how good of a man Harding was, how he treated people. He didn't matter black, white, rich, poor, young, old. It didn't matter male, female. He treated everybody the same, and was kind to everybody. Kind to animal, loved animals. Didn't like people who abused animals. If you if you abused animals in town, he'd call you out in the newspaper. He'd write an ugly story about you in the newspaper for abusing your horse or your mules. Uh, um, so yeah. he, you know, he had his own dog. He had a dog uh, named Laddie Boy, and he was the first White House celebrity pet in the 1920s. Um, yeah, okay. So I, and I actually have a picture on my wall of Harding and Laddie Boy. So he was, I mean, again, he, his his nature is nothing like we hear. We hear we hear party animal and drunkard and womanizer, and that's that's not the true Warren Harding. So where would you put him in the list of presidents? He's, he, he's, he's personally, he's in my, he's in my top five and that, that shocks people because I, but I say, well, look at what he did in 882 days in office. I mean, revive the American economy, restored domestic tranquility, um, you know, pardon those people who were political prisoners and, and work for equal rights for everybody and changed our foreign policy, got out of the internationalism. I mean, what else do you want a president to do? That's what I ask people. What, what else could he have done? And most people, the, the, what I've heard people who have read the book who send me emails and little notes on social media, they'll always tell me, I didn't realize he accomplished so much as president. And I really like the guy now. So, so those, are the, those are the best notes that I like. So for me, he's exactly the type of president I would, he's not an imperial president. You know, we hear about this imperial presidency. He was not that way at all. He was, he was more of a president like the founding fathers had envisioned that a president should be. And that's why I think he's a good president. We may not say he's a great president, but I think you could at least say he's a good one. Brian S. Walters, thank you so much for this great interview at 1001 Heroes. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for your book, Harding the Jazz Age President. How do people find your book, and how do they get in touch with you to cuss you out because of your positive beliefs and ideas about <laughs> Harding? Bring it. Um, I got a little website, ryanwalters.net. Uh, my email address is on there. I like to get notes from people. Best, probably the best place to buy the books just go to Amazon or it's, it's in Barnes and Noble. Uh, okay. My cousin, my cousin was in Honolulu the other day and went to Barnes and Noble and and, and sent me a picture of my book in Honolulu. So it, it's it's making its rounds around the country. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for your book. Greatly appreciated. Thank you for this interview thank today. Thank you so much, sir. Nice, be nice being able yes, to meet you, too, you. sir.